Uh, today we uh, come to a text uh, that's especially true, Romans 1, 18 through 32. And uh, we'll probably look at this text over the next couple of weeks because I think it's very, uh, very important uh, text. In fact, I would say that I probably, over my 25 years in ministry, doing college ministry, and especially in a culture that's very post-Christian culture, modern, postmodern, whatever term you want to use, I have probably used uh, this text more than hardly any other text to share the gospel from. And the reason that is the case is it deals with two issues I think uh, should pique your interest a little bit uh, that, that people have questions about. And one is the issue of this business of the wrath of God. Because he's going to come right out of the gate in verse 18 and talk about the wrath of God. And for some of you who are here today, maybe you brought a friend of yours, you're like, oh man, I'm, you're almost embarrassed about that term. Because we think of the wrath of God as some kind of medieval concept or some Eurocentric God uh, who's the cosmic killjoy. But we, we need to work through that. And everybody here needs to think about what this business means about the wrath of God. But the other issue I want to I deal with in relationship to this is, uh, well, what about those uh, uh, who have never heard the gospel? Is the wrath of God upon them? Is God fair? And uh, we're going to be looking at that really for several weeks, but we're going to hit that pretty hard today. Now, as we come to this uh, chapter, I do want you to understand that Paul, for the first three chapters, is making a case that ends in chapter 3, verse 21, that goes, but now there is a righteousness from God, that our greatest need is a righteousness from God. And what he's going to do in chapter 1, he's going to deal with, what about people who've never heard? What about the, those who are not God's covenant people? What about the Jews? That's what he's going to deal with. Some great answers in this text. And then the second question is, well, what about those who do have revelation? Those who are the Jews who saw God come down on Mount Sinai. What about people who've grown up in the church and been, been baptized? What about them? Is not being a church member enough? And then his answer ends up in chapter 3 that, whether you're Jew or Gentile, we're all guilty. So he begins uh, with uh, this uh, verse 18. So this is God's word. Let's look at God's word together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in their lust to their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God 
for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, they gave them up God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us in space and time. You have given us words on paper to know who you are and your attributes and what history is about, why there's evil in the world, why we are so displaced even in our own hearts and disquieted, why we all have a sense of oughtness about us. But Lord, we thank you that not only have you revealed to us that you're the creator and that there has been a fall, but you have revealed to us in the good news of the gospel that there is redemption and life and hope beyond the grave. Father, I pray for those who might resist. Lord, that they might see that their resistance is not always intellectual, but sometimes their resistance is uh, the desire to continue on and not acknowledge you and respond to your grace. And Father, for us who are believers in Christ, whose hearts have grown cold toward you, Lord, that we would not forget that Jesus Christ himself took upon himself our own sin and took upon himself your wrath on our behalf. So Lord, we ask that in this time we have together that your spirit would work and move in our lives. And we ask these things in your name and for your sake. Amen. If you're visiting, we've already looked at two, uh, had two sermons on Romans. And what we've said is this, that uh, without the book of Romans, the, the Bible would kind of fall apart. It's the, the knot in the boat. It is Paul's uh, case. It's his brief, as it were. It's his apologetic. But why Christians who are evangelical Christians uh, believe that Jesus Christ is our only hope. And, uh, and so... Paul says at the end of the book that he's on his way to preach this gospel to, to, to Spain because of the uttermost parts of the world because everyone must hear this gospel. He tells us that it's the gospel of God and we've already said that there are many gospels with the little g that promise uh, you uh, things will be good in this life if you do these things. But we've said that the gospel is good news. It's not advice. It's news about what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
He's accomplished the work. He did something 2,000 years ago and a sign uh, of it relating to everybody in this room and everybody in this world is his resurrection. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who would believe for in the gospel there is a righteousness that comes from God. And my friends, if you don't have that righteousness this morning, you need it. That's what is the gospel. Now, why do we need it? Well, now, for, that's verses 1 through 17. In verses 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to say the reason we need this gospel is because of the wrath of God. We need a righteousness because God must bring justice uh, in this world. Let me put it this way. You know, with, without, a, without a good backdrop, it's hard to, to really appreciate a painting. Any good artist knows that backdrops, as it were, help us see the painting. And, the, and the, the gospel really doesn't mean that much if all it is is to help you be more prosperous or get along with your family or this and that and the other if it's not against the backdrop of wrath. Now, again, if you're bucking against the word wrath, uh, it's probably because you got a wrong concept of it, and we will talk about that. But you see, the, the, the greatest need, as we've said many times, is not, it's, it's ultimately not your financial statement. A lot of you are hurting financially, I know that. A lot of you lost a lot of money over the last two or three years, no fault to your own, necessarily. And it's not even your, uh, your marriage or your health issues or anything that we can name in this life. And let me tell you why. Because ultimately, let me tell you what's going to get rid of all that, is death. When you're dead, you have no more physical problems, emotional problems, mental problems, financial problems, right? You're dead. But you see, the Bible teaches that beyond death, there's judgment. We have to give an account for our lives, for our pride, for our unwillingness to submit to God and to others. Uh, in fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 is very clear about this. Another text, uh, another book of Hebrews that talks about Christ being our great high priest. I mean, the whole Bible is about Jesus. It's not about being good and doing good and trying hard. It is about the fact you, we all need a Savior. The whole world needs a Savior. But in that book it says, It is appointed once for a man to die, and after that, the judgment. And we cannot be glib about that. Every man or woman must give an account for the life that we live. So your greatest need is, as it were, is to understand that the gospel of God is in the context of the wrath of God. Because if you think about it, just think about this for a moment, it makes sense. It's logical. And let me tell you why it is, because... We want justice in this world, don't we? I mean, I, I, we, 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 uh, we, we buck. We, we, is there something about us when there's been something perpetuated, uh, uh, perpetrated on someone and nothing gets done about it? Has that ever bothered you? In fact, I was on my way to church today and I was listening to the radio and I was listening to, uh, do you know, what's the guy's name? Clark, uh, Cl not Clark Kent, um, Clark Howard, Howell, Howard, 
the, the financial guy that I hate to listen to because I'm never really doing it exactly the way he says. But, but one of the things that he said, I don't know if you've heard the advertisement, is that, is that there's a lot of scams that are going on against older, older people. Now, you children, let me tell you what a scam is. It's when you trick somebody out of their money. Now, imagine an elderly person who's worked all their life. They're 75 years old, 70 years old. They might have another 20 years to live. And uh, somebody has lied to them and stolen all their money. And the person, the people, the elderly couple... They have no recourse. They can't go to the government and say, hey, I lost $150,000 here. Could you get that back from me? Oh, yeah, sure, we'll just write you a check. No, they don't have the money. Now, friends, I'm going to tell you, that one thing, just right there, makes me realize what evil is. And how we, in some ways, go, who would do such a thing? Who would do such a thing? And we want justice to be served. And matter of fact, nothing is more... Troubling, is it not, when there's been a court case and a person is obviously guilty and they get off and they have a wry grin on their face, right? Like I beat, beat the system. And so it makes sense that, you know, hey, listen, if it doesn't get taken care of here, it's going to get taken care of later. Right on. Because... You see, and I'll tell you this, uh, if, if a person is an atheist, they're always an atheist against this God. This God who gives an account. This God who's a person. This God is holy, uh, holy just, infinitely just. And so that's when we begin to feel uneasy, don't we? Because you see, we're all scam artists, aren't we? Everybody, if you're like a 10-year-old, you probably lied. Matter of fact, as you look at some of these choice sins that are in here toward the end, you go, wow, I don't murder. Don't do that. And don't do that. Don't. And then it starts getting down here where it starts saying that you are implacable. You know what that word means? It's not like the dental stuff. It's an unwillingness to forgive. You will not forgive. And God hands you over. He hands you over. We'll talk about this next week. The worst thing that can happen to you is for God to leave you alone. Because judgment's coming. Because they begin temporal ju judgments in our own life because He hands you over to have the very things you want and the very things that you want absolutely dominate your life. And we're going to look at that next week so we can make practical application of this. Now, as we come to this business about the wrath of God, we need to acknowledge that it's not preached on a lot. And you know what? I don't preach on it unless it's in the text. For, for, somebody asked me, we said, how can you ever preach on, on hell? And I'm like, well, you know, if it's there in the text. Actually, I preached on it on Mother's Day one time. Many of you will probably remember that because it was in the text. <laughs> so... But let me tell you how preaching goes in America today, and I only have two points here, so I, I, but this introduction is important because I've got to pull you in to the importance of this text. 
Because there's a lot of you here that just don't believe this. And I understand that. I really understand that because you can't believe it apart from the grace of God. There's lots of, if you're not a Christian here today, there's lots of religious Christian people here today that don't really believe this. They believe God's wrath ought to be on their spouse. And they live that way because we're wrathful toward people, right, sometimes. Not the kind that God's talking about here that we'll look at it in just a moment. But... But uh, James Boyce, uh, as I was, uh, he's, uh, James Boyce is a minister of uh, 10th Presbyterian Church. He wrote a commentary on this, uh, on the book of Romans. Probably one of the better ones I've read. I've, I've been reading several commentaries on this. Uh, but one of the things, when he came to this, and he was a, it was a sermon I read, he said, you know, we live in a day and age that don't like to talk about this. Uh, he said that, uh, he said that the way most preaching is today is to get at someone's felt needs. Do you have felt needs today? Anybody want to raise your hand? You got felt needs. I got felt needs. You've got felt needs. And, uh, and a felt need is a lack or a longing that the, the listener will acknowledge. Yeah, I can hit something that, you, you, that, that, that really relates to you. You go, man, I'm listening to that preacher. He's talking about uh, eating disorder today. And so if you've got an eating disorder, you go, hey, I, I need to listen to this. Or if you've got a financial problem or if you've got marital problems or whatever. So you begin to, to, to deal with these uh, felt needs that people have. The need of feeling, uh, the need or feeling of inadequacy, or personal relationships, or personal fears, or dealing with bad habits. The issue may be loneliness and uncontrollable desires. According to this theory, Boyce says preaching should begin with felt needs, because this alone establishes a point of contact with a listener, and wins a hearing. But does it? Oh, it may make a contact between the, peop- the between the teacher and the listener. But this does not, is not the same thing as establishing contact between the listener and God. Because you see, it could very well be that you think that your felt need is the most important thing in your life and it will cover up your real need, the real need, the real need to be righteous before God. That you can stand before God one day because according to our text, everyone in here will. And then all those other issues that you've been dealing with, the problems in your family, the problems with this, they're all going to be gone, and you're going to stand before God and give an account for the life that you've lived. Now, that should relate to every child in this room, everybody in this room, that you have to give an account. In fact, I would say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, but, you know, there's, there are texts that say that we should be faithful to preach the gospel the real needs, which addresses, of course, secondarily. Man, the gospel has really changed my marriage. It has. It has. The gospel has, has, has helped me in many, many ways deal with some financial things in my life. And sometimes I make good decisions. Sometimes I make dumb decisions. The gospel's helped that. But you see, the greatest need in my life has been met, and that is I can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I'm no longer eating meals under the wrath and curse of God. Peter tells us this. He said, For the time will come when men will, put up with, will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want them to say. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn uh, aside to myths. And what is the myth? Your felt needs. Uh, this, let's have some teaching about things that ultimately don't point us to real joy and absolute freedom that Jesus Christ brings and will bring to you this morning if by faith you would look to him.
So here's the proposition, two points in the conclusion. We will never appreciate Paul's thesis that we looked at last week. There now is a righteousness from God. Which when Luther heard it, he said, bam, it's as though heaven's gates opened up. But you will never appreciate a righteousness from God unless you truly believe that God's wrath is against all unrighteousness and your personal unrighteousness. Now, without a, here's the two questions. Why the, why the wrath of God? Okay, why the wrath of God? Does that really make sense? And then also, what about those who's never heard? Well, why the wrath of God? And, and, and in a minute, I'll explain to you, hopefully it'll help you a little bit, think, think this through, as we'll see what it's not. But let me tell you, the, the, our text says in, in verse 18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Very clear. In fact, what we are kind of embarrassed, you know, we really shouldn't talk about that because you have this picture of some Hollywood preacher up there just, you know, wailing away. (laughs) You know, and he thinks everybody else is in there is under the curse and wrath of God, but not him. And that's kind of the image that we have. But let me tell you, the Bible doesn't shy away from this message. In fact, if you've been doing the Bible reading and you go to Isaiah and you've been reading through Isaiah, it's a beautiful book. It's a wonderful book. You know, if you've ever gone on a Christmas thing and heard the Messiah, it's awesome, right? And it's talking about Jesus Christ. Who is the Messiah? The son of Jesse. Out of the, uh, uh, the, the branch of David and, and uh, all of those other wonderful passages in there in the Messiah. But it's all in the backdrop. If you read Isaiah, he's saying that the judgment's coming. Jesus Christ came into this world because he wasn't concerned about your felt needs. He was concerned about mine and your real needs. And the real need is obviously one that is so severe, is so, so incredibly important that Jesus Christ, the eternal son, enters into this world to take upon himself human flesh to do what you can't do for yourself, to be crucified and raised for our righteousness. So the Bible's not afraid to talk about it. You can just read right through the Bible. It begins with judgment in, in, in Genesis chapter 2, I mean 3, and then it ends up in the end that Jesus Christ is coming back again. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 says, uh, Paul says, uh, the Thessalonians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus Christ would deliver anybody in this room today from the certain, just, righteous judgment of God if you by faith look to him. But it's no real gospel news if you don't believe there's judgment. Maybe the reason some of us don't share our faith is because we don't really believe that about our roommates or our friends or our people across the street. Uh... Again, I can't help but the beginning of football season. See, all those people lined up in those stadiums. They're so excited, so excited about things that I, I get excited. But then I start thinking, you know what? 50 years ago, there was a whole different crowd there, right? And they were all excited, but they're dead now. <laughs> right? One generation comes, another generation goes, and it's, 
You know, Genesis chapter 5, you know, it says uh, they lived so long, so long, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. And chapter 5 is called the death chapter of Genesis because it's actually the ultimate fulfillment to, Je- to Adam and Eve because when they sinned, they didn't immediately die. They were separated from God. They didn't physically die. But, you know, chapter 5 of Genesis goes, oh, yes, they did. And, and this is the problem. And the reason you're not concerned about your death right now is because you're too young. That life is good. You're, you're going to live in this world forever. And I remember I used to sit, if you're, if you're a high school student, before I knew Jesus, I'd sit in that back row and I'd be listening to, the, you know, not the preaching. I'd be, I'd be thinking about myself and what I was going to do on Friday night and how many touchdowns I wasn't going to score. Or, I scored more touchdowns in church than I ever did on the football field, I can tell you that. <laughs> But why the wrath of God? Well, what is it? Um, Well, we need to avoid two extremes about the wrath of God. The first extreme that we need to avoid is uh, that we see it as human anger. Uh, You know, literature, well, he he felt the wrath of his father, right? And and it's a kid, he didn't know what he's doing wrong, and all of a sudden his father just slaps him upside the head. And, uh, but the other danger is uh, to say, well, listen, I, I'm sorry, I just can't deal with that kind of God. That a God would have the personal attribute, right, of wrath. I mean, my God wouldn't do that. My God is a God of love. My God would never, my God would never judge anyone. He would never, he would never be angry at anyone. He's like the, the, you know, the grandfather who, just like, hey, come on, take it easy on the kids. Because they don't have to live with the kids, right? So let me tell you, first off, it's not human anger. Let me tell you what, what human wrath is, sin. Human wrath is irrational, it's uncontrollable. It is filled with hatred and animosity and malice. It is the desire for revenge. That person has wounded me. And therefore, we think of wrath in terms of that. Because, you see, that is our nature. No, I'm not going to ask that person for forgiveness. Man, there's so many of you guys in here that probably your life has been on halt for about 10 years because you've never asked for forgiveness. You know why? Because you don't really think that you need, I mean, I don't need to be forgiven. And so, so your life is, is on halt. But, but you see, or we get angry at things because, you know what, I deserve that. I don't need that from you. And we think God's that way. We think that he's a human, but God is not human. And the only way that we reflect the image of God is when we are like being good and kind and gracious and holy and righteous and just and not judging our children wrongly but rightly, disciplining them rightly, not disciplining them out of anger. But this is what you think about God, many of you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God is not like that. God's anger is absolutely free of any such poisonous ingredients so his wrath is different from humans and let me tell you how we know this it's in the Greek word orge some of y'all might be into organic food organic farming organic y'all heard that term lately diversity and organic and I believe in organic I do I'm not I'm not against organic stuff been eating more of it lately it's a lot more expensive but (laughs) but here's what organic means right it it means uh, it means to ripen to eat something that's ripe. 
And when it speaks of God's anger, it uses this word, orge, which means that God didn't fly off with the ham, ha, handle. It is, he, it is all being set up, uh, and he is waiting patiently until the time to come. And when he comes, he's not going to fly off the handle. It's very predictable. That's the way God is. God is good. God is gracious. God is a just God. We want justice. You know what? God wants justice as well. And it's clicking right along. And some of us are already experiencing temporal judgments of God by God letting us go and do what you want to do. That's why some of us are so screwed up. Because you've got to have that. And we'll talk about that next week. But you see, God's not like that. But what is God's wrath revealed against? Now, this is another thing to understand. Okay, so, so it's, it's not like our, it's not human wrath. But what is his wrath against? You know what our wrath is against? It's always against what somebody's done to us, right? Usually. We get angry because, especially if you're insecure about stuff. And so you can't ever talk to people like that. You ever had people you try to say, hey, let me talk to you about so-and-so. And they go, hey, what's your problem? Versus somebody that goes, you know what, you're right, I need, I need to listen to that. I, you know, man, I've, I've really got a problem here as well. But you see, God's anger, God's wrath is revealed. Uh, I, it, it is his hatred of something outside himself. It is a hatred of sin. That God uh, does not, uh, nothing arouses God up except evil. You got that? Nothing inside himself. Not like he gets mad. Well, I can't believe you did that to me. But God's complete commitment to dealing with evil. Right? So, it's, so he doesn't fly off the handle. You see, we're not neutral. And so we'll see here in a minute we suppress the truth. But, but let me tell you what he's ultimately against. And then we'll move on to our last point. It's interesting. It says God's, uh, God is, um, he, his wrath is against godlessness and wickedness. Now, let me, they seem like kind of God words, but let me explain them to you. Very important. One, the Greek word is asibia, which means uh, it's God's upset when we do stuff to other people, okay? Right? God's upset about it. Don't you get upset when you see somebody doing something wrong? You're upset about that. It's not because it was against you. You're sitting there watching some parent treat their child terribly uh, in, in the grocery store, and your wrath goes out toward it. It's something that's out there. Well, that's the second table of the law. You're to love, God, love man, but, but, but we sin. But what's more importantly here is he, taught, he, he says it's also against wickedness of men. It is against adikia. And what that Greek word means is this. Uh, it is not wrath against particular sins but it is wrath a priori the whole idea that you want to live life for yourself somebody put it this way it is a, directed at those who have made an a priori decision to live for themselves rather for, than for God and others and therefore deliberately stifle any, stifle any truth which challenges their self-centeredness any self-centered people here? Let me say this, and I want to move to the last point, and then we'll come to communion. Some of you who really want to surrender your life to Christ, you're going, Lord, you know, not my will, your will be done. When you do that, we've been taught that everything's going to be great. Life's going to be good, right? 
Man, I'm submitting my life to Christ. Man, my checkbook's good. My marriage is good. My health is good. My preacher's good. Not that one, but... You know, but you know, it doesn't go that way. It goes opposite. Because you're saying, not my will be done, your will be done. I, don't, my, I am so self-centered, God. Would you please forgive me? I want to give my life to you and for other people. That's the first two tables of the law. I give my life to God. I give my life to other people. And when you do, other people start abusing you. You know why? They abuse Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is good and kind and gracious. You know what? You're going to go, hey, I'll tell you what, you have that. No, no. Here's the inheritance. I know there's some disputes here. You have it. You know why? I'm checking out of here anyway. And, and then you begin to get depressed and you get, begin to get lonely because you start seeing things that you never saw before. Let me ask you this. You think Jesus Christ is ever lonely? You think he was ever discouraged? Or do you think that oh, because he surrendered his life to the Father that everything was hunky and dory? No. I'm telling you what, he knew that God was good and he, he was not a self-centered person. His will was to do the, the first table of the law, God, you're my father, the second table of the law, and that is I love men. And you know what it got him? It got him crucified. So let me tell you this, that surrendering your life to Christ and saying, Lord, God, I don't, I don't want to suppress the truth. I want to give my life to you. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be great. It might very well be that people are actually watching you suffer well. Well, so that's, uh, that's what the wrath of God comes out against. People who want to live self-centered lives. Does that fit the bill for you? I mean, there's going to be a lot of people come out here and eat pig this afternoon. And you're welcome. I want you to come. There weren't a whole lot of people there last night to cook it. That's just kind of how we are. That sometimes uh, the idea of sacrifice is just very difficult for us. And so the wrath of God is determined against uh, people who want God to ignore them, right? If you want God to ignore you, he will ignore you. And you can live your self-centered life will be the worst thing that ever happens. Well, one last thing. So what about those who've, uh, what about those who've never heard the gospel? Okay, I believe what you're saying, but here I have the intellectual problem here is that, uh, you know what, I really, I, I just don't, I can't buy that. Well, we're going to look more at this next week, but you see, God very clearly says that he has. Notice what he says uh, about what men do with the truth. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, in other words, I want to live a self-centered life, suppress the truth. They sit on the truth. That's what the Greek word literally means, sitting on a box and you're sitting on it. You want to make sure it doesn't come up. Why? Because that truth means that, you, that you're not your own. Now, I want to talk more about this next week, but I want to use this as an illustration, and then we'll, then we'll conclude. But notice what he says is the result of those who suppress the truth. And what truth are they suppressing? Uh, verse 20, the invisible attributes, his eternal power, have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world in uh, the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. It's called general revelation, but Psalm 19. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Day and night they pour forth speech. There is no real atheist out there. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you, you just can't. And if you, if you are, then it doesn't deny the realities of the truth of who God is and the truth of the gospel. But notice what it says happens to people who do this, that they suppress the truth. And I'm talking about Christians as well. It says, uh, for although 
they knew God, they didn't honor God or give thanks to Him. They didn't give thanks. So let me conclude with this, on this. You say, what's the big deal about not giving thanks? Does it mean that they were ill-mannered, that they didn't have good manners, we just don't really thank God? No, let me tell you what it actually means. Uh, I was thinking about this about the, with the pig picking. Uh, there, there's a guy here named Greg Triplett. He's an elder in Wesley Bennett for 10 years. They've been doing this pig picking, okay? And trust me, there's going to be a lot of pig out there today. And there'll be veggie burgers too. But so come. Um, these guys have worked real hard, and they don't want any acclaim. They don't want any of that stuff. But I won't tell you what. Every year there's three, 400 people that benefit from it. And it's not like you just come and also, voila, there's a pig there. And voila, there's food there. And voila, all this stuff is there. And you just come and you're a beneficiary of it. But if you don't say you're thankful, if you don't go, hey, are you the one that did all this? Man, I'm really grateful because if you didn't do this, none of this would be here. Because, because ultimately what unthankfulness is, is that you're in control of your own life. It is though everybody is though it's just supposed to show up. And that is the way we treat God. We're not thankful to Him. And when, when you're not thankful, going, God, thank you for another day I live. I thank you for my bad financial situation. I thank you for wherever I am in life because you know what? I know that you're good and I have you and my life is completely dependent upon you and I surrender my life to you. That's the essence of what it means to know Jesus Christ, to know what he has done for you. Let me conclude by, uh, maybe I've used this illustration before, but I'm sure I have, but I think it fits here. Uh, I was not thankful to my mother growing up. How about you, some of you boys, especially you boys, you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you take your mother for granted. This is for you, mother, so y'all like me, but... Uh, you, now you boys, you don't take your, you take your mother, you know, and you kind of smart off every now and then. And I used to do that when I was younger. And I wasn't grateful. I wasn't grateful. And I remember one day my mother asked me to do something, and I smarted off to her. And uh, I went off to do my own thing. I ignored her. And, um, and then I wasn't a Christian at the time, guys. I'm going to tell you, but I tell you what, God began to work on me right then. He said, you know what? Your mother has done more for you than you'll ever remember. She changed your diapers. She gave you birth. She gave you life. She nursed you at her breast. And you know, your daddy probably spending money on you that you don't know about. And then all of a sudden, it hit me. It hit me that I was so selfish and that I thought that I created my own world when I realized how much I was dependent upon the love of somebody else. And I'm about 10 or 11 years old, 12 years old, and I began to weep. And I ran to my mother, and it won the law, okay? Won the law. Won, okay, you better, why my dad said, you better go apologize to your mother. It was me realizing how good she had been to me and how ungrateful I was. And it was her goodness that broke my heart. It was her goodness that made me realize how dependent I had been on her. You see, friends, that's true repentance. When you see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ, and it breaks you in half, and you come to Him and rest in Him. If you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you to do that this morning. The wrath of God has been quelled in Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Look to Jesus Christ and be saved.
And if you're indifferent about this and you're still indifferent about this, and even if you're professing Christian and you're indifferent about this, please ask God to give you the grace to understand how much truth you're suppressing right now and give you the gift of repentance to come to him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful that in you, your Father and our Father remains both just